Part 12 of Chance by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 12 Marlowe paused for quite a long time. He seemed uncertain, as though he had advanced something beyond my grasp. Purposely I made no sign. You understand? he asked. Perfectly, I said. You are the expert in the psychological wilderness. This is like one of those redskin stories where the noble savages carry off a girl, and the honest backwoodsman, with his incomparable knowledge, follows the track and reads the signs of her fate in a footprint here, a broken twig there, a trinket dropped by the way. I have always liked such stories. Go on. Marlowe smiled indulgently at my jesting. It is not exactly a story for boys, he said. I go on then. The sign, as you call it, was not very plentiful, but very much to the purpose. And when Mr. Powell heard, at a certain moment I felt bound to tell him, when he heard that I had known Mrs. Anthony before her marriage, that to a certain extent I was her confidant, for you can't deny that to a certain extent. Well, let us say that I had a look in. A young girl, you know, is something like a temple. You pass by and wonder what mysterious rites are going on in there, what prayers, what visions. The privileged men, the lover, the husband, who are given the key of the sanctuary, do not always know how to use it. For myself, without claim, without merit, simply by chance, I had been allowed to look through the half-open door, and I had seen the saddest possible desecration, the withered brightness of youth, a spirit neither made cringing nor yet dulled, but as if bewildered in quivering hopelessness by gratuitous cruelty, self-confidence destroyed, and instead a resigned recklessness, a mournful callousness, and all this simple, almost naive, before the material and moral difficulties of the situation, the passive anguish of the luckless. I asked myself, wasn't that ill luck exhausted yet? Ill luck which is like the hate of invisible powers interpreted made sensible and injurious by the actions of men? Mr. Powell, as you may well imagine, had opened his eyes at my statement, but he was full of his recalled experiences on board the Ferndale, and the strangeness of being mixed up in what went on board, simply because his name was also the name of a shipping-master, kept him in the state of wonder which made other coincidences, however unlikely, not so very surprising after all. This astonishing occurrence was so present to his mind that he always felt as though he were there under false pretenses, and this feeling was so uncomfortable that it nerved him to break through the awe-inspiring aloofness of his captain. He wanted to make a clean breast of it, I imagine that his youth stood in good stead to Mr. Powell. Oh, yes, youth is a power. 
Even Captain Anthony had to take some notice of it, as if it refreshed him to see something untouched, unscarred, unhardened by suffering. Or perhaps the very novelty of that face, on board a ship where he had seen the same faces for years, attracted his attention. Whether one day he dropped a word to his new second officer or only looked at him, I don't know. But Mr. Powell seized the opportunity, whatever it was. The captain who had started and stopped in his everlasting rapid walk smoothed his brow very soon, heard him to the end, and then laughed a little. Ah, that's the story. And you felt you must put me right as to this. Yes, sir. It doesn't matter how you came on board, said Anthony, and then showing that perhaps he was not so utterly absent from his ship as Franklin supposed. That's all right. You seem to be getting on very well with everybody, he said, in his curt hurried tone, as if talking hurt him, and his eyes already straying over the sea as usual. Yes, sir. Powell tells me that looking then at the strong face to which that haggard expression was returning, he had the impulse, from some confused friendly feeling, to add, I am very happy on board here, sir. The quickly returning glance, its steadiness, abashed Mr. Powell, and made him even step back a little. The captain looked as though he had forgotten the meaning of the word. You what? Oh, yes, you. Of course. Happy. Why not? This was merely muttered, and next moment Anthony was off on his headlong tramp, his eyes turned to the sea away from his ship. A sailor, indeed, looks generally into the great distances, but in Captain Anthony's case there was, as Powell expressed it, something particular, something purposeful, like the avoidance of pain or temptation. It was very marked once one had become aware of it. Before, one felt only a pronounced strangeness. Not that the captain, Powell was careful to explain, didn't see things as a shipmaster should. The proof of it was that on that very occasion he desired him, suddenly, after a period of silent pacing, to have all the staysails sheets eased off, and he was going on with some other remarks on the subject of these staysails, when Mrs. Anthony, followed by her father, emerged from the companion. She established herself in her chair to leeward of the skylight as usual. Thereupon the captain cut short whatever he was going to say, and in a little while went down below. I asked Mr. Powell whether the captain and his wife never conversed on deck. He said no, or at any rate they never exchanged more than a couple of words. There was some constraint between them. For instance, on that very occasion, when Mrs. Anthony came out, they did look at each other. The captain's eyes, indeed, followed her till she sat down. But he did not speak to her. He did not approach her, and afterwards left the deck without turning his head her way after this first silent exchange of glances. I asked Mr. Powell what did he do then. 
the captain being out of the way. I went over and talked to Mrs. Anthony. I was thinking that it must be very dull for her. She seemed to be such a stranger to the ship. The father was there, of course, always, said Powell. He was always there sitting on the skylight, as if he were keeping watch over her, and I think, he added, that he was worrying her. Not that she showed it in any way. Mrs. Anthony was always very quiet, and always ready to look one straight in the face. You talked together a lot. I pursued my inquiries. She mostly let me talk to her, confessed Mr. Powell. I don't know that she was very much interested, but still she let me. She never cut me short. All the sympathies of Mr. Powell were for Flora Anthony, nay, de Barral. She was the only human being younger than himself on board that ship, since the Ferndale carried no boys, and was manned by a full crew of able seamen. Yes, their youth had created a sort of bond between them. Mr. Powell's open countenance must have appeared to her distinctly pleasing amongst the mature, rough, crabbed, or even inimical faces she saw around her. With the warm generosity of his age, young Powell was on her side, as it were, even before he knew that there were sides to be taken on board that ship, and what this taking sides was about. There was a girl, a nice girl. He asked himself no questions. Flora de Barral was not so much younger in years than himself, but for some reason, perhaps by contrast, with the accepted idea of a captain's wife. He could not regard her otherwise but as an extremely youthful creature. At the same time, apart from her exalted position, she exercised over him the supremacy a woman's early immaturity gives her over a young man of her own age. As a matter of fact, we can see that, without ever having more than half an hour's consecutive conversation together, and the distances duly preserved, these two were becoming friends, under the eye of the old man, I suppose. How he first got in touch with his captain's wife, Powell relates in this way. It was long before his memorable conversation with the mate, and shortly after getting clear of the channel. It was gloomy weather, dead head wind, blowing quite half a gale. The Ferndale, under reduced sail, was stretching close-hauled across the track of the homeward-bound ships, just moving through the water and no more, since there was no object in pressing her, and the weather looked threatening. About ten o'clock at night he was alone on the poop in charge, keeping well aft by the weather rail, and staring to windward when amongst the white breaking seas, under the black sky, he made out the lights of a ship. He watched them for some time. She was running dead before the wind, of course. She will pass jolly close, he said to himself, and then suddenly he felt a great mistrust of that approaching ship. She's heading straight for us, he thought. It was not his business to get out of the way, on the contrary, and his uneasiness grew by the recollection of the forty tons of dynamite in the body of the Ferndale, 
not the sort of cargo one thinks of with equanimity in connection with a threatened collision. He gazed at the two small lights in the dark immensity filled with the angry noise of the seas. They fascinated him till their plainness to his sight gave him a conviction that there was danger there. He knew in his mind what to do in the emergency, but very properly he felt that he must call the captain out at once. He crossed the deck in one bound, but the immemorial custom and usage of the sea, the captain's room is on the starboard side. You would just as soon expect your captain to have his nose at the back of his head as to have his stateroom on the port side of the ship. Powell forgot all about the direction on that point given him by the chief. He flew over, as I said, stamped with his foot, and then putting his face to the cowl of the big ventilator, shouted down there, Please come on deck, sir, in a voice which was not trembling or scared, but which we may call fairly expressive. There could not be a mistake as to the urgence of the call, but instead of the expected alert all right, and the sound of a rush down there he heard only a faint exclamation then silence think of his astonishment he remained there his ear in the cowl of the ventilator his eyes fastened on those menacing side lights dancing on the gusts of the wind which swept the angry darkness of the sea it was as though he had waited an hour but it was something much less than a minute before he fairly bellowed into the wide tube captain anthony and agitated what is it was what he heard down there in mrs anthony's voice light rapid footsteps why didn't she try to wake him up i want the captain he shouted then gave it up making a dash for the companion where a blue light was kept resolved to act for himself on the way he glanced at the helmsman whose face lighted up by the binnacle lamps was calm. He said rapidly to him, Stand by to spin that helm up at the first word. The answer, Aye, aye, sir, was delivered in a steady voice. Then Mr. Powell, after a shout for the watch on deck to lay aft, ran to the ship's side and struck the blue light on the rail. A sort of nasty little spitting of sparks was all that came. The light, perhaps affected by damp, had failed to ignite. The time of all these various acts must be counted in seconds. Powell confessed to me that at this failure he experienced a paralysis of thought, of voice, of limbs. The unexpectedness of this misfire positively overcame his faculties. It was the only thing for which his imagination was not prepared. It was knocked clean over. When it got up it was with the suggestion that he must do something at once or there would be a broadside smash accompanied by the explosion of dynamite in which both ships would be blown up and every soul on board of them would vanish off the earth in an enormous flame and uproar. He saw the catastrophe happening and at the same moment before he could open his mouth or stir a limb to ward off the vision, a voice very near his ear, the measured voice of Captain Anthony, said, 
wouldn't light, hey? Throw it down. Jump for the flare-up. The spring of activity in Mr. Powell was released with great force. He jumped. The flare-up was kept inside the companion with a box of matches ready to hand. Almost before he knew he had moved, he was diving under the companion slide. He got hold of the can in the dark and tried to strike a light, but he had to press the flare-holder to his breast with one arm. His fingers were damp and stiff. His hands trembled a little. One match broke. Another went out. In its flame he saw the colorless face of Mrs. Anthony a little below him, standing on the cabin stairs. Her eyes, which were very close to his, he was in a crouching posture on the top step, seemed to burn darkly in the vanishing light. On deck the captain's voice was heard sudden and unexpectedly sardonic. "'You had better look sharp if you want to be in time.' "'Let me have the box,' said Mrs. Anthony, in a hurried and familiar whisper, which sounded amused as if they had been a couple of children up to some lark behind a wall. He was glad of the offer, which seemed to him very natural and without ceremony. "'Here you are. Catch hold.' Their hands touched in the dark, and she took the box while he held the paraffin-soaked torch in its iron holder. He thought of warning her, look out for yourself, but before he had the time to finish the sentence, the flare blazed up violently between them, and he saw her throw herself back with an arm across her face. Hello, he exclaimed, only he could not stop a moment to ask if she was hurt. He bolted out of the companion straight into his captain, who took the flare from him and held it high above his head. The fierce flame fluttered like a silk flag, throwing an angry, swaying glare mingled with moving shadows over the poop, lighting up the concave surfaces of the sails, gleaming on the wet paint of the white rails. And young Powell turned his eyes to windward with a catch in his breath. The strange ship, a darker shape in the night, did not seem to be moving onwards, but only to grow more distinct right abeam. Staring at the Ferndale with one green and one red eye which swayed and tossed, as if they belonged to the restless head of some invisible monster ambushed in the night amongst the waves. A moment, long like eternity, elapsed, and suddenly the monster, which seemed to take to itself the shape of a mountain, shut its green eye without as much as a preparatory wink. Mr. Powell drew a free breath. All right now, said Captain Anthony in a quiet undertone. He gave the blazing flare to Powell and walked aft to watch the passing of that menace of destruction coming blindly with its party-colored stare out of a blind night on the wings of a sweeping wind. Her very form could be distinguished now, black and elongated, amongst the hissing patches of foam bursting along her path. As is always the case with a ship running before wind and sea, she did not seem to an onlooker to move very fast, but to be progressing indolently in long leisurely bounds and pauses in the midst of the overtaking waves. 
It was only when actually passing the stern with an easy hail of the Ferndale that her headlong speed became apparent to the eye, with the red light shut off, and soaring like an immense shadow on the crest of a wave, she was lost to view in one great forward swing, melting into the lightless space. "'Close shave,' said Captain Anthony, in an indifferent voice, just raised enough to be heard in the wind. "'A blind lot on board that ship. Put out the flare now.' Silently, Mr. Powell inverted the holder, smothering the flame in the can, bringing about the mere turn of his wrist the fall of darkness upon the poop, and at the same time vanished out of his mind's eye the vision of another flame, enormous and fierce, shooting violently from a white churned patch of the sea, lighting up the very clouds, and carrying upwards in its volcanic rush flying spars, corpses, the fragments of two destroyed ships. It vanished, and there was an immense relief. He told me he did not know how scared he had been, not generally, but of that very thing his imagination had conjured till it was all over. For fear is a great tension, by the feeling of slack weariness which came over him all at once. He walked to the companion, and, stooping low to put the flare in its usual place, saw in the darkness the motionless pale oval of Mrs. Anthony's face. She whispered quietly, "'Is anything going to happen? What is it?' "'It's all over now,' he whispered back. He remained bent low, his head inside the cover, staring at that white ghostly oval. He wondered she had not rushed out on deck. She had remained quietly there. This was pluck, wonderful self-restraint, and it was not stupidity on her part. She knew there was imminent danger, and probably had some notion of its nature. "'You stayed here waiting for what would come,' he murmured admiringly. "'Wasn't that the best thing to do?' she asked. "'He didn't know.' Perhaps. He confessed he could not have done it, not he. His flesh and blood could not have stood it. He would have felt he must see what was coming. Then he remembered that the flare might have scorched her face, and expressed his concern. A bit, nothing to hurt. Smell the singed hair? There was a sort of gaiety in her tone. She might have been frightened, but she certainly was not overcome, and suffered from no reaction. This confirmed and augmented, if possible, Mr. Powell's good opinion of her as a jolly girl, though it seemed to him positively monstrous to refer in such terms to one's captain's wife. But she doesn't look it, he thought, in extenuation, and was going to say something more to her about the lighting of that flare when another voice was heard in the companion, saying some indistinct words. Its tone was contemptuous. It came from below, from the bottom of the stairs. It was a voice in the cabin, and the only other voice which could be heard in the main cabin at this time of the evening was the voice of Mrs. Anthony's father. The indistinct white oval sank from Mr. Powell's sight so swiftly as to take him by surprise. For a moment he hung 
at the opening of the companion, and now that her slight form was no longer obstructing the narrow and winding staircase, the voices came up louder, but the words were still indistinct. The old gentleman was excited about something, and Mrs. Anthony was managing him, as Powell expressed it. They moved away from the bottom of the stairs, and Powell went away from the companion. Yet he fancied he had heard the words lost to me before he withdrew his head. They had been uttered by Mr. Smith. Captain Anthony had not moved away from the taffrail. He remained in the very position he took up to watch the other ship go by, rolling and swinging all shadowy in the uproar of the following seas. He stirred not, and Powell, keeping near by, did not dare speak to him. So enigmatical in its contemplation of the night did his figure appear to his young eyes, indistinct, and in its immobility, staring into gloom, the prey of some incomprehensible grief, longing, or regret. Why is it that the stillness of a human being is often so impressive, so suggestive of evil, as if our proper fate were a ceaseless agitation? The stillness of Captain Anthony became almost intolerable to his second officer. Mr. Powell, loitering about the skylight, wanted his captain off the deck now. Why doesn't he go below? he asked himself impatiently. He ventured a cough. Whether the effect of the cough or not, Captain Anthony spoke. He did not move the least bit. With his back remaining turned to the whole length of the ship, he asked Mr. Powell with some brusqueness if the chief mate had neglected to instruct him that the captain was to be found on the port side. Yes, sir, said Mr. Powell, approaching his back. The mate told me to stamp on the port side when I wanted you, but I didn't remember at the moment. You should remember, the captain uttered with an effort, then added, mumbling, I don't want Mrs. Anthony frightened, don't you see? She wasn't this time, Powell said innocently. She lighted the flare-up for me, sir. This time, Captain Anthony exclaimed, and turned round. Mrs. Anthony lighted the flare? Mrs. Anthony, Powell explained, that she was in the companion all the time. All the time, repeated the captain. It seemed queer to Powell that, instead of going himself to see, the captain should ask him, Is she there now? Powell said that she had gone below after the ship had passed clear of the Ferndale. Captain Anthony made a movement towards the companion himself, when Powell added the information. Mr. Smith called to Mrs. Anthony from the saloon, sir. I believe they are talking there now. He was surprised to see the captain give up the idea of going below after all. He began to walk the poop instead, regardless of the cold, of the damp wind, and of the sprays, and yet he had nothing on but his sleeping suit and slippers. Powell, placing himself on the break of the poop, kept a lookout. When, after some time, he turned his head to steal a glance at his eccentric captain, 
he could not see his active and shadowy figure swinging to and fro the second mate of the ferndale walked aft peering about and addressed the seaman who steered captain gone below yes sir said the fellow who with a quid of tobacco bulging out of his left cheek kept his eyes on the compass card this minute he laughed laughed repeated powell incredulously do you mean the captain did you must be mistaken what would he want to laugh for don't know sir the elderly sailor displayed a profound indifference towards human emotions however after a longish pause he conceded a few words more to the second officer's weakness yes he was walking the deck as usual when suddenly he laughed a little and made for the companion thought of something funny all at once something funny that mr powell could not believe he did not ask himself why at the time funny thoughts come to men though in all sorts of situations they come to all sorts of men nevertheless mr powell was shocked to learn that captain anthony had laughed without visible cause on a certain night the impression for some reason was disagreeable and it was then while finishing his watch with the chilly gusts of wind sweeping at him out of the darkness where the short sea of the soundings growled spitefully all round the ship that it occurred to his unsophisticated mind that perhaps things are not what they are confidently expected to be that it was possible that captain anthony was not a happy man in so far you will perceive he was to a certain extent prepared for the apoplectic and sensitive franklin's lamentations about his captain and though he treated them with a contempt which was in a great measure sincere yet he admitted to me that deep down within him an inexplicable and uneasy suspicion that all was not well in that cabin so unusually cut off from the rest of the ship came into being and grew against his will chapter four anthony and flora marlow emerged out of the shadow of the bookcase to get himself a cigar from a box which stood on a little table by my side in the full light of the room i saw in his eyes that slightly mocking expression with which he habitually covered up his sympathetic impulses of mirth and pity before the unreasonable complications the idealism of mankind puts into the simple but poignant problem of conduct on this earth he selected and lit the cigar with affected care then turned upon me i had been looking at him silently i suppose he said the mockery of his eyes giving a pellucid quality to his tone that you think it's high time i told you something definite i mean something about that psychological cabin mystery of discomfort for it's obvious that it must be psychological which affected so profoundly mr franklin the chief mate and had even disturbed the serene innocence of mr powell the second of the ship ferndale commanded by roderick anthony the son of the poet you know you are going to confess now that you have failed to find it out i said in pretended indignation 
it would serve you right if i told you that i have but i won't i haven't failed i own though that for a time i was puzzled however i have now seen our powell many times under the most favourable conditions and besides i came upon a most unexpected source of information but never mind that the means don't concern you except in so far as they belong to the story i'll admit that for some time the old maiden lady-like occupation of putting two and two together failed to procure a coherent theory i am speaking now as an investigator a man of deductions with what we know of roderick anthony and flora de barral i could not deduct an ordinary marital quarrel beautifully matured in less than a year could i if you ask me what is an ordinary marital quarrel i will tell you that it is a difference about nothing i mean these nothings which as mr powell told us when we first met him sure people are so prone to start a row about and nurse into hatred from an idle sense of wrong from perverted ambition for spectacular reasons too there are on earth no actors too humble and obscure not to have a gallery that gallery which envenoms the play by stealthy jeers counsels of anger amused comments or words of perfidious compassion however the anthonys were free from all demoralizing influences at sea you know there is no gallery you hear no tormenting echoes of your own littleness there where either a great elemental voice roars defiantly under the sky or else an elemental silence seems to be part of the infinite stillness of the universe remembering flora de barral in the depths of moral misery and roderick anthony carried away by a gust of tempestuous tenderness i asked myself is it all forgotten already what could they have found to estrange them from each other with this rapidity and this thoroughness so far from all temptations in the peace of the sea and in an isolation so complete that if it had not been the jealous devotion of the sentimental franklin stimulating the attention of powell there would have been no record no evidence of it at all i must confess at once that it was flora de barral whom i suspected in this world as at present organized women are the suspected half of the population there are good reasons for that these reasons are so discoverable with a little reflection that it is not worth my while to set them out for you i will only mention this that the part falling to women's share being all influence has an air of occult and mysterious action something not altogether trustworthy like all natural forces which for us work in the dark because of our imperfect comprehension if women were not a force of nature blind in its strength and capricious in its power they would not be mistrusted as it is one can't help it you will say that this force having been in the person of flora de barral captured by anthony why yes he had dealt with her masterfully but man has captured electricity too 
it lights him on his way it warms his home it will even cook his dinner for him very much like a woman but what sort of conquest would you call it he knows nothing of it he has got to be mighty careful what he is about with his captive and the greater the demand he makes on it in the exultation of his pride the more likely it is to turn on him and burn him to a cinder a far-fetched enough parallel i observed coldly to marlow he had returned to the armchair in the shadow of the bookcase but accepting the meaning you have in your mind it reduces itself to the knowledge of how to use it and if you mean that this ravenous anthony ravenous is good interrupted marlow he was a hungering and a thirsting for femininity to enter his life in a way no mere feminist could have the slightest conception of i reckon that this accounts for much of fine's disgust with him good little fine you have no idea what infernal mischief he had worked during his call at the hotel but then who could have suspected anthony of being a heroic creature there are several kinds of heroism and one of them at least is idiotic it is the one which wears the aspect of sublime delicacy it is apparently the one of which the son of the delicate poet was capable he certainly resembled his father who by the way wore out two women without any satisfaction to himself because they did not come up to his super-refined standard of the delicacy which is so perceptible in his verses that's your poet he demands too much from others the inarticulate son had set up a standard for himself with that need for embodying in his conduct the dreams the passion the impulses the poet puts into arrangements of verses which are dearer to him than his own self and may make his own self appear sublime in the eyes of other people and even in his own eyes did anthony wish to appear sublime in his own eyes i should not like to make that charge though indeed there are other less noble ambitions at which the world does not dare to smile but i don't think so i do not even think that there was in what he did a conscious and lofty confidence in himself a particularly pronounced sense of power which leads men so often into impossible or equivocal situations looked at abstractedly the way in which truth is often seen in its real shape his life had been a life of solitude and silence and desire chance had thrown that girl in his way and if we may smile at his violent conquest of flora de barral we must admit also that this eager appropriation was truly the act of a man of solitude and desire a man also who unless a complete imbecile must have been a man of long and ardent reveries wherein the faculty of sincere passion matures slowly in the unexplored recesses of the heart and i know also that a passion dominating or tyrannical invading the whole man and subjugating all his faculties to its own unique end may conduct him whom it spurs and drives into all sorts of adventures to the brink of unfathomable 
dangers to the limits of folly and madness and death to the man then of a silence made only more impressive by the inarticulate thunders and mutters of the great seas an utter stranger to the clatter of tongues there comes the muscular little fine the most marked representative of that mankind whose voice is so strange to him the husband of his sister a personality standing out from the misty and remote multitude he comes and throws at him more talk than he has ever heard boomed out in an hour and certainly touching the deepest things anthony had ever discovered in himself and flings words like unfair whose very sound is abhorrent to him unfair undue advantage he unfair to that girl cruel to her no scorn could stand against the impression of such charges advanced with heat and conviction they shook him they were yet vibrating in the air of that stuffy hotel-room terrific disturbing impossible to get rid of when the door opened and flora de barral entered he did not even notice that she was late he was sitting on a sofa plunged in gloom was it true having himself always said exactly what he meant he imagined that people unless they were liars which of course his brother-in-law could not be never said more than they meant the deep chest voice of little fine was still in his ear he knows anthony said to himself he thought he had better go away and never see her again but she stood there before him accusing and appealing how could he abandon her that was out of the question she had no one or rather she had someone that father anthony was willing to take him at her valuation this father may have been the victim of the most atrocious injustice but what could a man coming out of jail do an old man too and then what sort of man what would become of them both anthony shuddered slightly and the faint smile with which flora had entered the room faded on her lips she was used to his impetuous tenderness she was no longer afraid of it but she had never seen him look like this before and she suspected at once some new cruelty of life he got up with his usual ardour but as if sobered by a momentous resolve and said no i can't let you out of my sight i have seen you you have told me your story you are honest you have never told me you loved me she waited saying to herself that he had never given her time that he had never asked her and that in truth she did not know i am inclined to believe that she did not as abundance of experience is not precisely her lot in life a woman is seldom an expert in matters of sentiment it is the man who can and generally does see himself pretty well inside and out women's self-possession is an outward thing inwardly they flutter perhaps because they are or feel themselves to be engaged all this speaking generally in flora de barral's particular case ever since anthony had suddenly broken his way 
into her hopeless and cruel existence she lived like a person liberated from a condemned cell by a natural cataclysm a tempest an earthquake not absolutely terrified because nothing can be worse than the eve of execution but stunned bewildered abandoning herself passively she did not want to make a sound to move a limb she hadn't the strength what was the good and deep down almost unconsciously she was seduced by the feeling of being supported by this violence a sensation she had never experienced before in her life she felt as if this whirlwind were calming down somehow as if this feeling of support which was tempting her to close her eyes deliciously and let herself be carried on and on into the unknown undefiled by vile experiences were less certain had wavered threateningly she tried to read something in his face in that energetic kindly face to which she had become accustomed so soon but she was not yet capable of understanding its expression scared discouraged on the threshold of adolescence plunged in moral misery of the bitterest kind she had not learned to read not that sort of language if anthony's love had been as egotistic as love generally is it would have been greater than the egoism of his vanity or of his generosity if you like and all this could not have happened he would not have hit upon the renunciation at which one does not know whether to grin or shudder it is true too that then his love would not have fastened itself upon the unhappy daughter of de barral but it was a love born of that rare pity which is not akin to contempt because rooted in an overwhelmingly strong capacity for tenderness the tenderness of the fiery kind the tenderness of silent solitary men the voluntary passionate outcasts of their kind at the time i am forced to think that his vanity must have been enormous what big eyes she has he said to himself amazed no wonder she was staring at him with all the might of her soul awakening slowly from a poisoned sleep in which it could only quiver with pain but could neither expand nor move he plunged into them breathless and tense deep deep like a mad sailor taking a desperate dive from the masthead into the blue unfathomable sea so many men have execrated and loved at the same time and his vanity was immense it had been touched to the quick by that muscular little feminist fine i i take advantage of her helplessness i unfair to that creature that wisp of mist that white shadow homeless in an ugly dirty world i could blow her away with a breath he was saying to himself with horror never all the supremely refined delicacy of tenderness expressed in so many fine lines of verse by carleon anthony grew to the size of a passion filling with inward sobs the big frame of the man who had never in his life read a single one of those famous sonnets singing of the most highly civilized 
chivalrous love of those sonnets which you know there's a volume of them my edition has the portrait of the author at thirty and when i showed it to mr powell the other day he exclaimed wonderful one would think this the portrait of captain anthony himself if i wanted to know what that if was but powell could not say there was something a difference no doubt there was in fineness perhaps the father fastidious cerebral morbidly shrinking from all contacts could only sing in harmonious numbers of what the son felt with a dumb and reckless sincerity possessed by most strong men's touching illusion as to the frailness of women and their spiritual fragility it seemed to anthony that he would be destroying breaking something very precious inside that being in fact nothing less than partly murdering her this seems a very extreme effect to flow from fine's words but anthony unaccustomed to the chatter of the firm earth never stayed to ask himself what value these words could have in fine's mouth and indeed the mere dark sound of them was utterly abhorrent to his native rectitude sea-salted hardened in the winds of wide horizons open as the day he wished to blurt out his indignation but she regarded him with an expectant air which checked him his visible discomfort made her uneasy he could only repeat oh yes you are perfectly honest you might have but i dare say you are right at any rate you have never said anything to me which you didn't mean never she whispered after a pause he seemed distracted choking with an emotion she could not understand because it resembled embarrassment a state of mind inconceivable in that man she wondered what it was she had said remembering that in very truth she had hardly spoken to him except when giving him the bare outline of her story which he seemed to have hardly had the patience to hear waving it perpetually aside with exclamations of horror and anger with fiercely sombre mutters enough enough and with alarming starts from a forced stillness as though he meant to rush out at once and take vengeance on somebody she was saying to herself that he caught her words in the air never letting her finish her thought honest honest yes certainly she had been that her letter to mrs fine had been prompted by honesty but she reflected sadly that she had never known what to say to him that perhaps she had nothing to say but you'll find out that i can be honest too he burst out in a menacing tone she had learned to appreciate with an amused thrill she waited for what was coming but he hung in the wind he looked round the room with disgust as if he could see traces on the walls of all the casual tenants that had ever passed through it people had quarrelled in that room they had been ill in it there had been misery in that room wickedness 
crime perhaps death most likely this was not a fit place he snatched up his hat he had made up his mind the ship the ship he had known ever since she came off the stocks his home her shelter the uncontaminated honest ship was the place let us go on board we'll talk there he said and you will have to listen to me for whatever happens no matter what they say i cannot let you go you can't say that misgivings or no misgivings she could have done anything else but go on board it was the appointed business of that morning during the drive he was silent anthony was the last man to condemn conventionally any human being to scorn and despise even deserved misfortune he was ready to take old de barral the convict on his daughter's valuation without the slightest reserve but love like this though it may drive one into risky folly by the proud consciousness of its own strength has a sagacity of its own and now as if lifted up into a higher and serene region by its purpose of renunciation it gave him leisure to reflect for the first time in these last few days he said to himself i don't know that man she does not know him either she was barely sixteen when they locked him up she was a child what will he say what will he do no he concluded i cannot leave her behind with that man who would come into the world as if out of a grave they went on board in silence and it was after showing her round and when they had returned to the saloon that he assailed her in his fiery masterful fashion at first she did not understand then when she understood that he was giving her her liberty she went stiff all over her hand resting on the edge of the table her face set like a carving of white marble it was all over it was as that abominable governess had said she was insignificant contemptible nobody could love her humiliation clung to her like a cold shroud never to be shaken off unwarmed by this madness of generosity yes here your home i can't give it to you and go away but it is big enough for us too you need not be afraid if you say so i shall not even look at you remember that grey head of which you have been thinking night and day where is it going to rest where else if not here where nothing evil can touch it don't you understand that i won't let you buy shelter from me at the cost of your very soul i won't you are too much part of me i have found myself since i came upon you and i would rather sell my own soul to the devil than let you go out of my keeping but i must have the right he went away brusquely to shut the door leading on deck and came back the whole length of the cabin repeating i must have the legal right are you ashamed of letting people think you are my wife he opened his arms as if to clasp her to his breast but mastered the impulse and shook 
his clenched hands at her, repeating, I must have the right if only for your father's sake. I must have the right. Where would you take him? To that infernal cardboard box-maker? I don't know what keeps me from hunting him up in his virtuous home and bashing his head in. I can't bear the thought. Listen to me, Flora. Do you hear what I am saying to you? You are not so proud that you can't understand that I as a man have my pride too? He saw a tear glide down her white cheek from under each lowered eyelid. Then abruptly she walked out of the cabin. He stood for a moment, concentrated, reckoning his own strength, interrogating his heart, before he followed her hastily. Already she had reached the wharf. At the sound of his pursuing footsteps, her strength failed her. Where could she escape from this? From this new perfidy of life taking upon itself the form of magnanimity. His very voice was changed. The sustaining whirlwind had let her down, to stumble on again, weakened by the fresh stab, bereft of moral support, which is wanted in life more than all the charities of material help. She had never had it, never. Not from the fines, but where to go. Oh, yes, this dock, a placid sheet of water close at hand. But there was that old man with whom she had walked hand in hand on the parade by the sea. She seemed to see him coming to meet her, pitiful, a little grayer, with an appealing look and an extended tremulous arm. It was for her now to take the hand of that wronged man, more helpless than a child. But where could she lead him? Where? And what was she to say to him? What words of cheer, of courage, and of hope? There were none. Heaven and earth were mute, unconcerned at their meeting. But this other man was coming up behind her. He was very close now. His fiery person seemed to radiate heat, a tingling vibration into the atmosphere. She was exhausted, careless, afraid to stumble, ready to fall. She fancied she could hear his breathing. A wave of languid warmth overtook her. She seemed to lose touch with the ground under her feet, and when she felt him slip his hand under her arm, she made no attempt to disengage herself from that grasp which closed upon her limb, insinuating and firm. He conducted her through the dangers of the quayside. Her sight was dim. A moving truck was like a mountain gliding by. Men passed by as if in a mist, and the buildings, the sheds, the unexpected open spaces, the ships, had strange, distorted, dangerous shapes. She said to herself that it was good not to be bothered with all these things meant in the scheme of creation, if indeed anything had a meaning, or were just piled up matter without any sense. She felt how she had always been unrelated to this world. She was hanging on to it merely by that one arm, grasped firmly just below the elbow. 
it was a captivity so be it till they got out into the street and saw the handsome waiting outside the gates anthony spoke only once beginning brusquely but in a much gentler tone than she had ever heard from his lips of course i ought to have known that you could not care for a man like me a stranger silence gives consent yes eh i don't want any of that sort of consent and unless some day you find you can speak no no i shall never ask you for all the sign i will give you you may go to your grave with sealed lips but what i have said you must do he bent his head over her with tender care at the same time she felt her arm pressed and shaken inconspicuously but in an undeniable manner you must do it a little shake that no passer-by could notice and this was going on in a deserted part of the dock it must be done you are listening to me eh or would you go again to my sister his ironic tone perhaps from want of use had an awful grating ferocity would you go to her he pursued in the same strange voice your best friend and say nicely i am sorry would you no you couldn't there are things that even you poor dear lost girl couldn't stand eh die rather that's it of course or can you be thinking of taking your father to that infernal cousin's house no don't speak i can't bear to think of it i would follow you there and smash the door the catch in his voice astonished her by its resemblance to a sob it frightened her too the thought that came to her head was he mustn't he was putting her into the hansom oh he mustn't he mustn't she was still more frightened by the discovery that he was shaking all over bewildered shrinking into the far-off corner avoiding his eyes she yet saw the quivering of his mouth and made a wild attempt at a smile which broke the rigidity of her lips and set her teeth chattering suddenly i am not coming with you he was saying i'll tell the man i can't better not what is it are you cold come what is it only to go to a confounded stuffy room a hole of an office not a quarter of an hour i'll come for you in ten days don't think of it too much think of no man woman or child of all that silly crowd cumbering the ground don't think of me either think of yourself ha nothing will be able to touch you then at last say nothing don't move i'll have everything arranged and as long as you don't hate the sight of me and you don't there's nothing to be frightened about one of their silly offices with a couple of ink slingers of no consequence poor scribbling devils the hansom drove away with flora de barral inside without movement without thought only too glad to rest to be alone and still moving away without effort in solitude and silence 
Anthony roamed the streets for hours, without being able to remember in the evening where he had been, in the manner of a happy and exulting lover. But nobody could have thought so from his face, which bore no signs of blissful anticipation. Exulting indeed he was, but it was a special sort of exultation, which seemed to take him by the throat like an enemy. Anthony's last words to Flora referred to the registry office where they were married ten days later. During that time Anthony saw no one or anything, though he went about restlessly here and there amongst men and things. This special state is peculiar to common lovers, who are known to have no eyes for anything except for the contemplation, actual or inward, of one human form, which for them contains the soul of the whole world in all its beauty, perfection, variety, and infinity. It must be extremely pleasant, but felicity was denied to Roderick Anthony's contemplation. He was not a common sort of lover, and he was punished for it, as if nature, which it is said abhors a vacuum, were so very conventional as to abhor every sort of exceptional conduct. Roderick Anthony had begun already to suffer. That is why, perhaps, he was so industrious in going about amongst his fellow-men, who would have been surprised and humiliated had they known how little solidity and even existence they had in his eyes but they could not suspect anything so queer. They saw nothing extraordinary in him during that fortnight, and proof of this is that they were willing to transact business with him. Obviously they were, since it is then that the offer of chartering his ship for the special purpose of proceeding to the western islands was put in his way by a firm of shipbrokers who had no doubt of his sanity. He probably looked sane enough for all the practical purposes of commercial life, but I am not so certain that he really was quite sane at that time. However, he jumped at the offer. Providence itself was offering him this opportunity to accustom the girl to sea life by a comparatively short trip. This was the time when everything that happened Everything he heard, casual words, unrelated phrases, seemed a provocation, or an encouragement, confirmed him in his resolution. And indeed, to be busy with material affairs is the best preservative against reflection, fears, doubts, all these things which stand in the way of achievement. I suppose a fellow proposing to cut his throat would experience a sort of relief while occupied in stropping his razor carefully. And Anthony was extremely careful in preparing for himself and for the luckless Flora, an impossible existence. He went about it with no more tremors than if he had been stuffed with rags or made of iron instead of flesh and blood, an existence, mind you, which on shore in the thick of mankind, 
of varied interests of distractions of infinite opportunities to preserve your distance from each other is hardly conceivable but on board ship at sea en tete a tete for days and weeks and months together could mean nothing but mental torture an exquisite absurdity of torment he was a simple soul his hopelessly masculine ingenuousness is displayed in a touching way by his care to procure some woman to attend on flora the condition of guaranteed perfect respectability gave him moments of anxious thought when he remembered suddenly his steward's wife he must have exclaimed eureka with particular exultation one does not like to call anthony an ass but really to put any woman within scenting distance of such a secret and suppose that she would not track it out end of part twelve